How much influence can an individual investor have? This was the question I asked Pete Klopp. He is Senior Advisor on Sustainable Investment at the Dutch pension fund PGGM, and he's a leading voice in pushing these big and sometimes boring organisations to, in his words, get real and consider the impact of how they invest their very large piles of capital. While many pension funds are now using the Sustainable Development Goals as a framework to map their impacts, PGGM had already set themselves some key themes to tackle well before 2015, when the SDGs, these 17 global challenges, started to build momentum for the private sector to make a change. From an Australian perspective, this is even more interesting because the Dutch don't get a choice of pension fund. If you're in the health and welfare sector, PGGM is the manager you are stuck with. While in Australia, most of us have the freedom to choose our super fund. And more and more people are voting with their feet and switching to a fund that better aligns with their social and environmental values. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. My name is John Treadgold and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Now, Pete never intended to work for a pension fund. In his early days, he was a water engineer working in Pakistan and in Yemen. He was sure a technical solution could solve the many problems in front of him. His view then shifted. He thought that perhaps it was incentives that really mattered. And that turned him to environmental economics and the foundational issue of trying to value negative externalities. This is really central to the whole issue of whether our market economy is compatible with environmental sustainability. So be sure to listen in for that. But for Pete, that wasn't the whole story. He wanted to go deeper. He wanted to make impact at scale. And for that, he knew he'd need capital and lots of it. And that's what led him to the investment manager, PGGM. We dug into the challenges of measuring impact for companies who are publicly listed, as well as how much of the credit an investor should take for a company's good work. I also asked Pete whether this focus on sustainability was a product of optimism and health in financial markets, and how these strategies will fare in a market downturn. He's got some really valuable insights there. All right, well, that's enough out of me. Let's dive into the conversation. Here we go. just seen how big this has become you know responsible investing and impact investing and well maybe that's thanks to people like you there seem to be a hundred flowers blooming you know here in australia which is a good thing i suppose and that's really what this is all about is to try and knuckle down and break down why that is happening hopefully it's not just because we've got some great economic prosperity at the moment but that it's part of generally people want to make a difference and people are seeing you know post gfc millennial generation coming up that they do have the power and telling those stories. I mean, we've both spent the last two days at the Impact Summit here in Sydney. Can you tell us something new that you learned or took away from it? Well, the first thing that I took away was that, you know, there's such a wealth of ideas and passionate people around this. I was really impressed by the sheer number of initiatives 
the one thing that I always feel, you know, slightly conflicted about perhaps is that looking at this stuff from an institutional investor's angle, there's only so much justice you can do to all this because it's rather small. You know, ideas tend to start small, you know, while we come from the other side, you know, where it's got to be big and boring before it becomes investable. So we have to find ways to get closer to where the cool stuff is happening. It reminds you what you're doing it for, you know, before you get all bogged down in writing memos and doing all the paperwork. You know, this is what it ultimately should be all about. Oh, that's great. It's good to hear that, uh, that you know, there's a lot of energy behind a, a finance conference, which some people might not uh, often relate to it. But yeah, it's certainly a different kind of group with people that are really trying to make a change. And I think that's an interesting paradox that, that you're on the institutional side, but a lot of the traditional impact investors make direct investments in, into smaller companies. So that's quite an interesting element. And you at PGGM manage some 200 million euros, if I've got that number right, the retirement savings of the health and welfare yep. sector. But you have quite a unique investing philosophy. It goes beyond choosing just not to invest in companies that are causing damage, but right. aim to actually do good. Uh, how do you do it? You're not investing directly into companies. You get ESG filters, that sort of yep. thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, we started like so many others, you know, from attempts not to be evil. In fact, you know, we started because of a Dutch TV program that had us associated with cluster bomb manufacturers. So, you know, that's something that obviously nobody was really keen on. We started screening out companies with an obvious negative impact on the world. It started indeed with controversial weapons, but two years ago, for example, we excluded tobacco. So don't be evil was the first order of business. Then we moved on to active ownership, which is still trying to mitigate our risks, right, whether reputational or financial. But it's only since three years or so that we can't just be less bad, but really be more good. And for that, you know, we've picked four themes originally, even before the sustainable development goals came along. We picked four themes, climate, water, food and health as the big four themes on which we wanted to make that positive impact. And we do so in a variety of ways. But the important thing is that we do so across different asset classes and we do it without conceding on our first objective and, and, and responsibility, which is paying out pensions that people count on. So we can't trade off return for impact. We want both. And we think we can have both. Perhaps beyond that, we believe that in order for solutions to scale, we need both. I came from the World Bank, you know, maybe you've seen that in my, uh, my LinkedIn profile or so. But so I came from the world of impact organizations that have the luxury to forego financial returns for maximum impact. The problem is that there is a limit to the concessional finance, to the, the amount of concessional finance available. So for opportunities to scale to the point that you can actually make a dent in global problems like climate change or water scarcity or income inequality, you need to go big. And you can only go big on a commercial basis. At first, I thought I needed to apologize for that. But increasingly, I think, you know, this could be our role in that spectrum of capital providers that, yeah, we can't do the trade-offs, but we can bring scale. That's really my personal reason to join PGM, you know, because that's what I hope to find there and what I'm, in fact, finding there. 
scale is clearly vital for the industry to grow. But then to have influence, you have the option to buy into certain shares, but at the same time to sell, to divest. Yeah. But then in between, there's active ownership, which you mentioned. Right. So engaging with companies. How does BGGM right. manage that? Yeah, we try to engage with companies really to manage our risk, right? And we've got a fairly big in-house engagement team, which is trying to engage proactively on a distinct number of themes, corporate governance, human rights, the four themes that I just mentioned, climate, water, food and health. And overarching, perhaps, you know, our contribution and the contribution of our partners to a more stable financial system. We try to be proactive on these themes. And then at the same time, we've outsourced engagement on the minimum standards that we need to observe, the global compact, that is, the OECD guidelines for multinational companies. And there's global engagement services, GES, in, in Stockholm, in Sweden, that does the engagement for us. So they hold the minimum line, mostly reacting on incidents of non-compliance with those guidelines and standards. And we then engage proactively on the themes that I just mentioned. That's interesting that you focus on those standards that comes from one of your stakeholders, I guess. How much input do you have from individual investors about the strategies that they want? You know, I'm thinking of the people who have their pensions with yeah. you, you know, how much input do you have from the street? Our system really is then fundamentally different, or still it is, <laughs> from the one here in Australia. You know, in the Netherlands, it's all compulsory. It's a mandatory pension scheme. We serve the healthcare sector, for example. So if you work in that sector, you've got no choice than to save for your pension through us. Although there's regular surveys amongst the 2.7 million people we serve, it's really the Board of Trustees that decides on the policy and priorities that PGGM then is tasked with implementing. So the assumption is that the participants and their social preferences are represented by that Board of Trustees. And this is also the reason, by the way, John, that, that we have to be very careful with our fiduciary responsibility. You know, people, they don't have the choice. So we can't assume that they'll trade financial return for impact. We just can't, you know. Surveys say that some of them, at least, will be prepared to take a cut on the financial side of things. But I think it's safe to assume that the majority really doesn't want that. Do you think, though, that people have more power than they think in terms of making their voice heard about how their pensions are invested? I think people do have more power. Of course, it's a mandatory pension scheme, but you can contact your board members. Uh, you can speak out. You can even get nominated on that board. You can be an active participant. And that's in addition, of course, to your power as a consumer, as a voter, etc. But it's true. It, it's less power than you may have here in Australia, you know, here, if you don't like your super, you move over to the one next door, right? That is something that in the Netherlands you cannot do. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that distinction. I think we here in Australia can be a little complacent about the freedom we have to control who manages our super and, and in turn what they invest in. I'm always hounding my friends and family to, to give it more thought and to make their voices heard. But shifting back a little bit to something you said previously, this question of fiduciary duty, do you think there's still a lingering legal question or is it pretty much settled that, that managing risks like climate are just as important as financial returns? I think that question around climate, for example, is largely settled. You know, I think there's very few people in the Netherlands right now that would deny that there is a financial side to climate change on the risk side in particular, but perhaps also on the opportunity side. 
I think the key here is, whether it's climate or food or water or health, a lot of these externalities are often dismissed as non-financial. That is something we should not do. We should talk mm. about them as not yet financial. Sure, prices may not fully reflect all the risks of water scarcity or food security or a healthcare system that may be unaffordable, but one day those phenomena will catch up with us. So we believe that as a long-term investor, this is going to happen within your investment horizon. If you're big enough and your investment horizon is long enough, a lot of these externalities become internalities. They will hit you one way or the other. It could be also on the positive side, by the way. All these things also present opportunities. But we believe that we should not see them as external or as non-financial. It may be two sides of the same coin, really. Our long-term financial health really depends on our meaningful integration of these factors. Yeah, negative externalities is really key to all of this. And, and I think for people that might not be sort of as, as aware of the economics terminology about, about a negative externality being a cost to society that's not factored into the price of the good, so something like pollution, you're saying that in the future that will be internalized. Why do you think it's taken so long? Where did, where did we lose our way with that? Yeah, man, that's, that's, that's the question indeed. I think because unlike perhaps a pension fund, which really expects to be around in 30, 40 years time, our individual horizons are so much shorter, right? Whether it's in politics or just daily life, it is easy to forget about the long-term consequences of pollution. When you just go about your daily business, you know, we all drive cars, we all fly around the world. We know that that's not a good thing. We know that there's a cumulative impact that is probably going to catch up with us. And yet we continue doing so. I think it's human nature ultimately. And I think you've got a good perspective on that, having started out, shift back a, a little while, just a few years now to when you started out as an environmental economist, where that would really be central to us. Can you give us a bit of background to the early decisions you made in your career? <laughs> well, Did you I, always yearn to work for a pension fund? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's very few people who wake up one day thinking that my dream is to join a pension fund. To start before I became an environmental economist, I was a water engineer. So I worked in difficult places, Pakistan, Indonesia, four years in Yemen, building water schemes and, and small dams, irrigation systems. So I really thought, you know, all we need is a technical fix to some of these troubles and, and problems that we've got. But then I quickly discovered it may not be the technical fixes we need most. We need incentives to get it right. That got me to environmental economics. Pricing in externalities, that's the, the short... Uh, summary, perhaps, of, of what that is all about. But then I thought, you know, we don't just need incentives, they're important, but we mostly need capital, you know, money to throw at these problems. And only that got me to PGGM. There's concentrated capital there, you know, there's enormous piles of money that potentially could have a, a real big impact. That comes with constraints, you know, obviously. It's not that we can put all that 220 billion euros on the high impact green investments, even if there were enough opportunities to do so. Obviously, we need to be very, very careful there. But it is true that concentrated pools of capital do present enormous opportunities for positive impact. That got me to PGGM. And so if PGGM 
has this capital, they invest it, they tend to go more for listed equities. How do you then measure that impact? You're very good at measuring yeah. the accounting side, the financial side. Yeah. How do you account yeah. for impact in the, in the listed, you know, public yeah. space? Well, you know, measuring impact is difficult wherever you go, not just in the public markets. It's true, though, that there's a whole debate about whether there actually is impact in secondary markets for equities and, and bonds. Because all you do is trade the ownership of a particular security, right? On the ground, nothing may change. It's just that, you know, the, the share is held by party A on this day and by party B on, on another day. And yet, we do believe that there is something happening there. PGM runs its own distinct strategy on listed equities for solutions. So rather than tracking a broad market index, we've selected 350 companies on the basis of their sales or market share. The solutions to the four themes that I mentioned that we've identified separately. So we built these taxonomies of solutions per theme or per SDG. And we try to find out whether indeed a company does enough of one or more of those solutions, produce enough products and services that tag those solutions to merit inclusion in that universe. From that universe, we draw portfolios and those portfolios are managed on just straightforward financial metrics. So what we believe we add to overall market development by doing so is first of all, signal clearly that impact matters, outcomes matter. It's not just the financial returns, it's also where those financial returns come from and whether we actually want what we invest in. So that, that's one thing. Big institutional investors caring about outcomes, impacts. And the other thing we believe we can add to overall market development is that we insist on measuring that impact. Now, of course, this is difficult. Some companies already do it, but most don't. So how can you bring them to look more carefully and more rigorously at the positive impact they may be creating through their products and services? Well, we believe, first of all, that you can ask them to do so through engagement. You can also try to provoke them to do so through modeling those impacts. And this is why we've teamed up with UBS, and UBS in turn has teamed up with Harvard and the City University of New York and Wageningen University in the Netherlands to build models that essentially convert euros sales to impact. And that could be either tons of carbon emissions avoided or liters of water saved or numbers of lives extended, tangible impact that is. Now, of course, these models will always be imperfect and just plain wrong in many cases, but they do have the merit that they can bring companies to look more carefully, more closely at what that positive impact could be. And in a way, John, it's strange that companies haven't done so already. You know, you would expect them to do this, not just from a marketing point of view, but really from a corporate strategy point of view, to know exactly what their products and services are good for. Well, obviously, that, that hasn't happened uh, in, in all cases. So, so we're still pushing this. We do communicate carefully, though, that whatever the impact is in listed equities or in bonds, it's the impact of the company that we happen to be associated with. We try to be careful not to claim that something would have happened or not have happened thanks to us. We associate ourselves with the impact by, say, Unilever, 
but we don't claim that it wouldn't have happened without us. I think this is important. And there's this thing, the impact management project that you may have heard about, that really tries to separate that, you know, in measuring impact, try to be careful that you don't necessarily attribute this to your own investment decision. Yes, there is impact that we add to overall market development, but the impact on the ground may be best communicated as the impact by that company, not by the provider of the capital to that company. So we try to be careful in our communications, but we do think that even in listed equities, even in bonds, it's important that investors speak out. Outcomes matter and outcomes must be measured. That's right. So companies have sort of two key stakeholders, I guess. They have people like you, investors on one side and customers, and their actions influence both. And so they have to be good corporate citizens for both sides. And so that's really interesting that you say you don't say that, that positivity was from us, but you are instead supporting positive exactly. companies to do that exactly. more. The data itself, imagine, you know, Unilever probably got some great impact measurement metrics, but many don't. Do you expect most of the data coming from them? You said you do your own modeling and the dollars to impact and yep. that sort of thing. How does that balance out? I think ultimately it's got to be the companies themselves who do this, you know, because those models can only be improved with proprietary data. You know, a lot of this stuff comes down to breakdowns of sales to particular geographies or particular segments of the population. And that breakdown is rarely put in the public domain. So ultimately it should be companies doing this and perfecting this over, the, over time. And the only thing we can do is encourage them to do so. And our own model building is a component of that. And so is our engagement. And so is our voting. So we see ourselves as a cheerleader, perhaps, <laughs> of this, this development. We do so also through other initiatives, standard setting, impact management project, global reporting initiative. We try to encourage the market as a whole and companies in particular to come forward with not just their negative impact, but also their positive impact. Yeah, and one of those initiatives I came across last year was related to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and that was right. the Sustainable Development Investments, which is you know finding investment opportunities within the SDGs. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? That is something that we started with APG, uh, that other big Dutch pension fund, or pension fund manager rather. There's two things to that, you know. One is that you should be clear about what you're for. So you really have to be explicit about what solutions you're looking for in your investments, either existing investments or new investments. Those are those taxonomies. Every SDG has its own list of solutions, investable solutions, that we'd like to invest in. On the other end of the process, so this is the front end, right? The, the solutions you're looking for, taxonomies. And, you know, be very clear about what it is. On the other side, you've got the result of all these investments, you know, the impact of those investments. And there we proposed with a working group of 20 plus Dutch financials under the auspices of our central bank, a list of positive impact indicators, just three or four per SDG. I think that that is important too, as to the integrity of all this. We need to make sure that if we claim impact, we can also answer the question, how much impact? There's two sides to this sustainable development initiative or, or, or sustainable development investments. One is the front end, be clear about what you're looking for. And at the other end, measure whether or not you've actually made a difference. 
Now, all of this is work in progress, obviously. You know, these taxonomies will never be final, I think. And right now, for example, it's interesting to see that the European Commission has taken up the taxonomy baton and is trying to wrap all these different taxonomies that are out there already together in something that, you know, hopefully will be, you know, a sort of a standard taxonomy. The impact indicators we're trying to mainstream through the Global Reporting Initiative, which perhaps traditionally was mostly geared towards operational impact. And we would like to add to that the impact through products and services, product impact. We try to not, you know, add another tree to an overcrowded forest, but mainstream this into bigger initiatives that hopefully will bring a little more method to the madness of sustainable or impact investing. Mm, well, that's it. It's slow progress and the evolution is happening. The SDGs are a big part of that and, and they're very colourful. And, you know, European countries generally, fund managers over there are, are engaging from far away here in Australia. Could you give us a bit of a perspective on how Dutch managers, Dutch finance, the, the government, and, and then I guess Europe broadly um, are engaging and, and, and how you feel the Netherlands fit into that paradigm? I don't necessarily think that, you know, Europe is special. We may have an industry that has taken the SDGs too hard, but I see lots of promising initiatives in the US and here in Australia too. So I think what may help us a bit here is that indeed we've got the mandatory pension scheme. Uh, there's a lot of drivers that want our pensions to come with purpose. We are expected to prove our social utility by millennials, by women working in our sector, but also by the regulator and by politics and parliament. That all seems to conspire to this thing that we call investing in solutions or sustainable development investment. I think the government has played an important role in perhaps promoting those SDGs. And it's true, you know, they've become more popular than I thought they would be. I think that really is due to their distinct nature, 17 brightly colored boxes, you know, that's the sort of thing that appeals to the financial sector, you know, they like distinct things that hopefully they can standardize down the road. So I think the way this was promoted and presented was really good. And the government played a key role there. Right now, I would think that the regulator is perhaps the more important uh, stakeholder on the public side. Of course, you know, once the regulator says this is a good thing, then people do sit up and listen. They also see this as an essential part of rebuilding trust in the financial system. Again, you know, proving our social utilities is an important component of that. So I think all of that together make us rather keen supporters of this. The other thing is that it's United Nations, so it's, it's universal, right? It's something that you can talk about wherever you go around the world. People know this, or at least have seen this. The way we see it is the SDG is a, is a kind of a language, you know. The Sustainable Development Goals are a language that more and more people have mastered or are mastering. They're also a very nice and, and, and helpful menu of themes to invest in from which you can pick and choose. It ticks so many of the boxes that people and investors are looking for when they try to think about, you know, reconnecting investment making to real world outcomes. Maybe Europe was keener on this than other parts of the world, but I, I think it's spreading real fast. 
Yeah, that's a really nice imagery, calling it a, a universal language of sustainability. And it's been quite amazing at its success. At the risk of being a bit cliche, there's this idea that a lot of this is being led by millennials, by women. This sustainability push is being part of the SDGs. But I just wonder, coming from the GFC, we've seen economies all over the world growing and, and we now are wondering, are we at the end of the cycle? Do you think there's a risk that perhaps this stuff will be put on the back burner if there's a downturn? Yeah, I think that risk is always there, which is why we should never present it as a luxury. You know, We should present it as a not yet financial thing, as something that has an opportunity side to it too. In a downturn, investment horizons shorten, countries, people become more selfish. That just never helps. But then again, I think this may have developed legs already. Think about climate. There's an obvious opportunity there. And people will get on with this and that will survive the downturn for sure. Plus, you know, there's a lot of things in those SDGs that simply present a risk, you know, whether you like it or not. If water runs out in a crisis or a not crisis, you know, in an upturn or a downturn, it's a very real thing to deal with. It's just important that we don't think that this is all fun and games. These are real risks and real opportunities, and we should get on with them, upturn or downturn. Indeed. Well, look, Pete, I'm all about storytelling, and you've shown us today you're clearly good at a yarn and some good metaphors. Uh, this podcast is all about digging up the stories of impact. And I did see in my research that PGGM not only manages money for pension funds, but they also help manage their communications. Can you tell us about the importance of that skill set of, of communications and what the money managers know about telling stories? I think we are gradually getting a little bit better at it, perhaps. Maybe just an example, you know, if we are indeed aiming to provide pensions with a purpose, then we've got to explain, you know, whether or not we're succeeding in delivering that purpose. And in that, that listed equity strategy that I mentioned just a few minutes ago, when all is said and done, what we do have at the end of that process is what we called a Peter Borgdorf test. Peter Borgdorf is the name of the spokesperson, the director effect of the main fund that we serve. He gets on TV and in the media a lot. We want him to be able to explain in just 30 seconds why it is that we want to be invested in that particular company or asset. The way we've developed our storytelling skills is, is not to be black and white in this sort of thing. It's not all good or all bad. You know, we try to be a little more nuanced there. So the way we prep ourselves and prep our director, Borgdorf, is that we present the case in favor of a particular impact investment. So we try to get across why and where and how that impact happens. That's the positive side of things. Then we do acknowledge there's downsides too. There may be other impacts that are negative. You know, it could be good for climate, bad for food security or the other way around. We should acknowledge that. We should also acknowledge that there may be ESG risks. There may simply be operational risks associated with a particular impact investment. In fact, impact investment, like any other investments, do have downsides. And then we end with all things considered, this is why we want it or this is why we do not want it. That three-step process works quite well, actually. This is why we think it's good impact. This is the possible downsides. This is all things considered why we still want it. And it's that sort of 30-second pitch. It's a one-sheet of paper pitch that we have prepared for all our positive impact investments, all our investments and solutions. And 
even though this sounds really banal, it's a skill that we lost, you know, being a passive investor for a long time. We didn't necessarily know enough about our investments, let alone that we could explain why we even wanted to be invested in that particular asset. This is trying to recover that original skill, perhaps, that original mindset. The key here is not to sweep the bad news under the carpet, you know, own up to the risks that you're running, own up to the the balance that you're striking between impacts and downsides to that impact. And that seems to be working. You know, people do seem to appreciate that honesty and nuance. Yeah, I think it is honesty and transparency. I think for too long, the finance industry is, is hidden behind jargon and big piles of paper that are either spreadsheets or text that's too hard to read. So coming up with really simple, readable explanations. I guess it's on the one hand, leaving you open to questions that might be difficult, but at the same time, proving exactly. transparency. You do invite criticism that way, you know, and, and, and I think another important thing to our storytelling is perhaps that we try to communicate the tangible impact of all of this, you know, not to hide behind a score or a ratio or something that is perhaps a little too abstract to communicate to your 2.7 million participants or members. So we try to bring it down to earth and get real. But that does invite better understanding and more criticism, perhaps. In a weird way, it could be more attractive to just lay low. But that's not what we've chosen to do. We just want to make sure we get better at this. Very good. I like it. And yeah, saying get real, I think that that's pretty important. If someone asked you for advice about, about responsible investing in the changing economy, what book might you recommend for them? First of all, there's a lot of good stuff that is out there. And, you know, it's not a book, but, but it's a constant stream of reports that I'm trying to read almost every day. There's real good stuff being published by Generation Investment Management, by the Climate Bonds Initiative. There's much of that. But, you know, what got me going is a book that I think was published 2002. So that's almost 20 years ago, which is ironic because the book itself is called High Noon. 20 global issues and 20 years to solve them. Well, that 20-year period is almost gone now. And this book gave me a kick in the pants that you can't just go small. We need to go big and we need to go big quickly. I thought the book was, was interesting because it lays out, you know, not just the need, but also the opportunity to do so. Not just the problems, but also the mechanisms by which we could get on top of those problems. Now, you may say, you know, we haven't really succeeded there and a lot of stuff has happened between 2002 and, and where we currently are. And yet, that is the one book that I would recommend, because even though there's many variations on this same theme, it lays out very succinctly what we should be doing, why we should be doing it, and how we can succeed. Mm, and gives us an opportunity to reflect on, yeah, what we have achieved in the past decade and a half and, and what perhaps we need to pick up the pace on. Absolutely. And for anybody out there, we'll put some details to that book in the show notes on my website so they can find it there. Now, Pete, I'm going to let you go. Do you have much more time in Sydney? I've got another day and a half, so I'll be probably heading out to the beach this afternoon. This is the oh, thing good. about sustainability. You've got to enjoy it too, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Unfortunately, it's turned a little cold here today, but um, I think there'll be a bit of sunshine later on. And yeah, you've certainly got to experience the flora and fauna of Australia yourself. Man, I love this country. It's beautiful. Very good. Well, hopefully you'll get back soon. And, uh, and thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been great. You're welcome, man. Good luck.
there's so much more you can talk about this, you know, and I love this stuff. The, the beauty of the financial sector, I always find that it's got a very broad scope. Obviously, you know, everything is financial, you could argue. And at the same time, it's very specific. There's a, an almost myopic thing to it, you know, that it's about money. So it's about everything and it's about one thing. It helps people to concentrate their minds and yet apply that, that myopic, the, the, the smarts that people do have to a lot of different issues. I never really engaged with my superannuation, my pension when I was younger, but then I started working for QIC, one of the big Australian fund managers. And yeah, it really blew my mind at the power. I think there's political power there, infrastructure power. And people, you know, in the end, this is the money of individuals all over Australia and, and we have a voice. And as you said, I appreciate that difference between the Dutch and here where we can shift our money as we want. And there's quite a lot of commercial marketing and, and differentiation going on. It's unique for Australia. People can almost vote with their money here, right? If you don't like your politics, and maybe there's many reasons not to like it, at least you can vote with your money. And that's maybe something that will happen to, to the Netherlands too, you know. I don't think this mandatory system will be there forever. There's also interesting investment products on the market these days that allow people to do just that and do it a lot easier, maybe almost in a Tinder-like fashion, you know, moving in and out of securities. And mm -hmm. I think that's all wonderful. It may be myopic, but its intelligence nonetheless is a great thing that I find in this, this particular sector. Yeah, look, it's democratization and it's getting rid of the jargon and I like it. Good luck, man. And uh, thanks for this. Pleasure. Hey, this last little bit, I think it's quite good. So I might include that if you don't mind as well. 